0: on local now channel five twenty five. Welcome back, Thursday, August twenty fifth, twenty twenty two. It is a delight to be here. I am Seth leapson The phone is number six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. If you'd like to uh, join the conversation, uh, be part of it, or uh, start one, I am. Um, I, I want to thank everyone who uh, I got to see last night at the Larry Elder production uh, premiere of Uncle Tom 2, his brand spanking new documentary. Uh, what a great night. It was really great to see y'all. Um, and uh, and uh, isn't Larry just a, an amazing thing, uh, a, a, an amazing production in and of himself? uh he, his his movie uncle tom 2 really well you know what i'm going i'm going to ask bill you to remind me of it uh some th- thoughts i want to share about it uh later in the show because i want to i want to start off with um with uh, the 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 continuing and ongoing assault on common sense that is the student loan uh, forgiveness uh, uh plan that joe biden unveiled yesterday um we were playing this audio yesterday And it's worth playing again today because I was curious how it would um, how it would play out for the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, Um, yesterday after Joe Biden with the stroke of a pen decided to bail out. College uh, student loans in the amount of ten thousand dollars or less for those making one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars or less or up to one hundred and twenty five thousand or two hundred and forty nine thousand. If you're a married couple, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker of the House, put out a press release yesterday. She's she the press release reads this quote. President Biden's bold action is a strong step in Democrats fight to expand access to higher education and empower every American To reach fulfillment on and on she goes by delivering historic targeted student debt relief to millions of borrowers. More working families will be able to meet kitchen table needs. There's this interesting paragraph guided by President Biden's commitment to justice and equity. Democrats have led led the charge to support students through the hardships of the pandemic and to open the gates of higher education for those who have long been left behind, said the pyromaniac about the stench of the ashes she is now presiding over. A commitment to justice and equity to support students through the hardships of the pandemic, the hardships of the pandemic, which were imposed on America by the Democratic Party and the left. They created the problem in order to solve it, evidently. But that's not really the greatest assault on our intelligence, because we've sort of gotten used to that. We've sort of gotten used to that. That's Nancy Pelosi yesterday celebrating and promoting what Joe Biden did. It's important we remember what she said almost exactly one year ago. A page of history is worth a volume of logic, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, This isn't a page of history, history. it's an audio clip of history. Nancy Pelosi was doing her press conference a, a year ago, it was actually July of 2021, just over a year ago, July of 2021, and she was getting a lot of questions about this concept of relieving students of their student loans, because Elizabeth Warren had been pushing for it, because Bernie Sanders had been pushing for it, and because the squad led by AOC had been pushing for it in her own caucus, and Nancy Pelosi Um, knows that it's a political loser. So she said this exactly a year ago. People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would has to be an act of Congress. She's protecting her turf and she's speaking to a constitutional verity truth. Yesterday, she writes, as I said, President Biden's bold action is a strong step in Democrats' fight to expand access to higher education and empower every American to reach fulfillment. There's two things there of import and a third that isn't mentioned also. I don't expect every press release to address constitutional issues, but when you are on record in saying that the contemplated Uh, the contemplated policy of the president is unconstitutional. I think you owe us a little more than president Biden's bold action is a strong step in Democrats right to expand access to higher education and empower every American to reach fulfillment. Now there's a tell in there too, in those two points, expand access to higher education and empower every American to reach fulfillment. The first is this issue of expanding access to higher education. I don't know of The Economist. I don't know that The Economist exists who believes that this plan will make access to higher education more affordable per se. It does nothing to lower tuition rates. Not a thing. But it is that second point within it, Expand access to higher education that I think is underneath all this, is behind this plan, which is to encourage more people to go to college. I don't know if you're familiar, if you're aware of this, but the majority of Americans don't have a college degree. The majority of adult Americans don't have college degrees. And I'm kind of in the opposite position of Nancy Pelosi right now, big surprise, although we would have been on the same page maybe 20 years ago on this issue. I'm not so sure expanding access to higher education is a good idea, though I get why Democrats do think it is a good idea. There is no institution that does more of the groundwork, electioneering, campaigning and governing training than the, uh, for the Democratic Party than the American College and University. The American college and university is where you go if you want your child to come out and become a Democrat or a socialist Marxist who run under the Democratic Party. Wait for my monologue on that later in the show. I'll just give you the hit, the the quick headline here. Are you aware that four socialists were elected in the state legislature of New York this past Tuesday? No, you're not aware of that because the media is not touting it and saying much about it. The Democratic Party isn't promoting it. Very much. Reasons for that we'll get into a little bit later, but all of this is an effort to de uh, uh, de. Stigmatize The expense of going to colleges and universities. That's what this is about. They want you in the colleges and universities. They want you in the colleges and universities just as badly as they want children in the public education system to be protected from the viewpoints, dictates, concerns, suggestions, offerings and ideas of the parents. Karl Marx, in the second uh, chapter of his Communist Manifesto, says that the revolution will come, the social change will come through social education. You don't really need Karl Marx for that. It's obvious. It's obvious that education's inst- the ed- institutions of education, elementary, secondary, post-secondary, or what um, Nancy Pelosi calls higher education, Colleges and universities, these are the training grounds for the dream palace of the socialists. And this is why. NEA officials, this is why liberal democratic school board officials, and this is why Joe Biden say when the children are in the schools, there are children. They're not the parents' children. This is why schools are now concealing to and lying to and covering up to The parents when it comes to children who believe that they should be able to change their sex. Read the article in the City Journal on this by Leo Sapir, if you doubt it. We had him on what, Bill, about a month, month and a half ago? Important, important piece. Why would you be concealing things from parents about their children unless you believe that the children during the school day are yours and not the parents? Why would you believe that parents who show up at school board meetings and want to talk about, if not challenge the school curricula, whether it comes having whether it comes whether it has to do with sex uh, sex changes, uh, whether it has to do with gender reassignment, whether it has to do with emotional learning, whether it has to do. With critical race theory or just the crud of the textbooks generally, why would you think that the school board's association with the assist from the NEA and this Department of Justice would want to consider parents who want to involve themselves in that as domestic terrorists? They want the parents out of the schools. They want the schools for themselves so that they can be breeding and training grounds for the leftist desires of this administration and the radical left in America. They think the schools are theirs. They aren't. Just because they're public, it doesn't mean simply that they are government. It means that they are public and you are part of the public. You pay for them. We talked about the free rider yesterday, the issue of the free rider. Everyone pays into the public education system, whether they have children in it or not, whether they have children or not, whether they are able to have children or not. They pay into the. It is your system, but they don't want it to be your system. They want it to be their system. That's what this is about. I'm Seth Leipsin, six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're looking for a really remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out my friends at Y Refi. If you were at the Larry uh, Elder, uh, Uncle Tom Two uh, premiere last night, you got to meet the guys because they sponsored it and were there. They are offering a fixed, no-load interest rate up to ten and a quarter percent for investors, all on in a secure and collateralized. Portfolio. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm, as I say, run by really just really great people. They're um, investors who do really well by doing good for others. And you can be a part of that. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 316 Eight seven. I'm going to say a few words about uh, that movie uh, and that premiere and Larry Elder, and a little bit. Bill, you'll 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 remind me on that. You'll remind me to do that. But let me let me say a concluding. Let me give a concluding thought, if I might. Unless you all have more to say about it uh, regarding Biden's student loan forgiveness. Uh, Ariel Davidson. It's been a while since we've had her on. We need to get her back on. She wrote a uh, probably probably the clearest column on what this means to the little guy in America and I say little guy because that's who Joe Biden continues to tell us he's all about and for the little guy um, Ariel writes team Biden's student loan forgiveness forgiveness scheme is yet another example of mis uh, of misguided and dangerous policy initiative masquerading as a public Good. No surprise from an administration in which political missteps are the norm. The left is heralding the plan which will forgive up to $10,000 for student loan borrowers making $125,000 or less and 20,000 for Pell Grant recipients as genuine assistance for millions of debtors. But it's like a band-aid on a gunshot wound. It not only falls short of the hype but provides a false sense of financial relief worsening an already deeply broken system. The reality, it's not the government forgiving debt, but the U.S. taxpayer being forced to cover it. It's a little bit like what we think of saying before, public schools. It's not just some entity that runs it. It's financed by you. Again, whether you have children or not, this plan Joe Biden's is financed by you, whether you went to college or didn't go to college or have kids that went to college or didn't go to college or not. The government doesn't fund itself. You almost feel like I have to channel Milton Friedman to say the obvious. But we forget this. We talk about the government. The government is not only made up of us, but it every it's every dime comes from us. Establishing the borrower, uh, the10,000 per borrower earning less than 125,000, will cost the country a whopping $300 billion dollars right up front and another 300 billion dollars over the next several years. Think about that $300 billion number. Do you know what that means? I mean, there's any number of ways you can look at it. I'm thinking education. It covers more than three years. It covers almost four years of the funding of the entire Department of Education. Get rid of that, too, while we're at it, when we take over the Congress, if we can. I, that's We've been trying to do that forever. There's a good lesson in that, too, by the way. And that lesson should be connected to what happened with Joe Biden yesterday. Once you have a government program... Very, very, very few. I can't even think of one off the top of my head. Very, very few ever go away. Once the needle's in the arm, it's hard to take it out. It's easy to recall the left's hysteria of the not-so-distant past when Donald Trump sought $15 billion to build his border wall. He sought $15 billion to to build his border wall, even if... He could do it through executive action without an act of Congress. And people went nuts, went nuts, couldn't have $15 billion for the border wall. Oh, we can do $600 billion for a college bailout. We can do $65 billion for another country like Ukraine. We can leave $90 billion over worth of equipment to the Taliban, but $15 billion to protect Our own country, we cannot do. Anyway, back to Ariel Davidson. What makes President Biden's student debt plan particularly galling is that those set to benefit most are among the top income earners. University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School recently did an analysis on this and found 70% of the forgiven debt, 70% of those who will Those who will make use of this plan, 70% of those this plan is addressed to, will have been held by those in the top 60% of income distribution. Adding salt to the wound is the fact that those living in Washington, D.C., probably have the most to gain. The capital of the United States is home to the highest average amount of student debt per borrower. So they're not complaining about this in Washington, D.C. In fact, it may be the only city in the country where you could get away with doing this. The entire arrangement, while a little too on the nose, is a stark reminder of the self-serving nature of America's elite. Members of the upper crust are essentially making others pay their bills for them. Others who they've likely condescended to for not attending the elite institutions, they did. It's a ridiculous farce for which the Biden administration should be publicly shamed. But then again, there are a lot of ridiculous farces where the elites expect the plebeians to bail them out and work while they don't. What do you think those covid shutdowns were all about? As middle class uh, families face soaring inflation. Driven in part by rising energy costs, Biden's tone deaf response is to throw cash at its university base, at its college university educated elite base. And the majority of Americans worry this debt relief only worsen inflation by providing borrowers with more money to spend. The universities themselves, meanwhile, are thrilled by Biden's plan. Loan forgiveness functions the same way federal aid does. It essentially greenlights the colleges and universities to continue to hike prices, knowing the federal government has zero qualm about covering tuition costs in the immediate future. This gets us to what has been known, come to be known as the Bennett Hypothesis. You can look this up, articulated by William Bennett when he was the Secretary of Education. A lot of articles on the Bennett Hypothesis. Tuitions rise as student loan rises, as student loans rise. That's what we're doing. It will not, as Nancy Pelosi say, help make college more affordable. It'll make living in America more expensive. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I shouldn't swear, so I shouldn't say that, but I am convinced that's the same opening. We've done this before to the Rockford Files. It is. It just is. Which came out first? What what year is that song from? What is it? Yeah, you're going to have to tell me. Okay. Uh, welcome back to the Seth Leibson show. Um, your dollar, not a laughing matter, buys less today than it did a month ago. Paper money continues to be worth less and less. I'm painfully aware of this every time I go shopping, and you are too. You don't need me to tell you this. But maybe the good news, that gold and other precious metals hold their value traditionally when economies fail and fall like now. You can't possibly have confidence in our government right now to get us out of our inflationary moment. Can you? I don't. So consider, real money has real worth. Gold is real money. Real money. And you can diversify your investments and savings with gold or other precious metals. I recommend the Midas Gold Group, the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group. I own precious metals from them. Seb Gorka does. Thousands of you already do, too. If you want to talk with them about adding precious metals to your portfolio, Give them a call at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or visit them online at the Midas, excuse me, Goldgroup.com. Not the Midas Gold Group, but Goldgroup.com. Very, very few websites have uh, an article in front of them. Midas Goldgroup.com. Okay, so I think we came in with a song uh, called Fox on the Run. Who, who is that, Bill? Who does Fox on the Run? Sweet. Is it the one hit? Is it a one? Is it a one hit wonder? More or less. They might have a couple others. Fox on the Run was recorded in 1974. Rockford debuted. Excuse me. Yeah. 1974. Rockford debuted also in 1974. Coincidence? I think not. I think not. Um all right I was asking you to remind me about uh, saying something about Larry Elder and his film Uncle Tom 2 several of you were there last night several a lot of you were there last night and it was uh, great to meet and be with you and great uh, to have you um have you see see this documentary the essence of Larry uh, oh they yes of course they did the ballroom blitz of course they did ballroom blitz uh um One of the things Larry is driving at in Uncle Tom, too, is one of the most crucial things for us to appreciate. And I'll get to some of this in my monologue in the third hour as well. But it's the reliance upon Marxist philosophy cum theology that the modern civil rights movement is creating racial division in this country with. Um. I opened some comments up. I opened up the uh, debut of the film last night, the premiere, with some some comments. And I began by observing something Adam Carolla said about a week or two ago, which is absolutely true. If you want to know what white supremacists or bigots – we're thinking and trying to accomplish in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. You can go to the history books, of course. Or you can just look to the elite current civil rights organizations and black power movements in front of your very eyes. Look at what BLM stands for today. Look at what Al Sharpton stands for today. Look at for what Jesse Jackson supports today. Look at what people like Ibram Kendi stand for today. Look at what people like Robin DeAngelo stand for today. It's just what the white bigots stood for in the 30s and 20s, 30s and 40s. Segregated education, segregated classrooms, segregated dorms, segregated housing units, segregated segregated graduation ceremonies, and, of course, judging people and giving benefits and awards and detriments based on skin color. That's what white pickets—you know, Thurgood Marshall— in his, uh, I pointed this out last night too. In his brief to the Supreme Court in 1953, in the Supreme Court case of Brown versus Board of Education, Thurgood Marshall became famous as the lead attorney for the NAACP in arguing that case. Later, himself got on the Supreme Court. But in 1953, when he was arguing on behalf of desegregation in his brief, he wrote, "Quote." Distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary and so invidious that a state bound to guarantee the equal protections of the law must not invoke them in any public sphere. It's a great phrase. It's beautiful. I'll say it again. Distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary and so invidious that a state bound to guarantee the equal protections of the law must not invoke them in any public sphere. If you said that in the 50s, that was quite a progressive thing to say, especially if you were in the South. If you said it in the 70s or 80s, even maybe in the early 90s, it was pretty much conventional wisdom. If you say it today, according to the Kendys and DeAngelo's and Sharpton's and the current efforts of the NAACP, you're a racist. Adam's absolutely right you want to know what the bigots of yesterday stood for, look at what the elite civil rights organizations stand for today. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-5080-960. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions of which are brought to you not by the Rockford Files but by the great people at Balance of Nature. Balanceofnature.com is the website to get their fruits and veggies. I take them every day, half for years, three years at least now I think, which is the exact same amount of time I stopped getting sick several times a year. Whenever the seasons would change, I'd get sick. I haven't. It's Taking Balance of Nature. It's a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables in one daily dose of vegetarian capsules. 100% pure vegetables and fruits from the capsule to the ingredients. Best product I've ever taken. You can access it too at balanceofnature.com. Discount code. Make sure to use discount code balance. I was listening to um, Dennis Prager this morning, and he was reminding us of something we should never, ever, ever forget. Bill, you'll never forget it because you've been on it from day one. I think I was, too. A couple years ago when Dennis was on the Bill Maher show, Bill Maher was talking about the lies of Donald Trump. And Dennis boisterously said, these things don't concern me as much as the much more dangerous and bigger lies that the left tells every single day. To which Bill Maher said, like What? To which Dennis said, well, I can give you any number of examples. Let's start with the left telling us that men, men straight. And everyone on the panel and everyone in the audience laughed, tried to laugh Dennis out of the room, tried to shame him, made fun of him in disbelief, in disbelief. They're not laughing now. They're defending it. They're not laughing. I don't know that Bill Maher is, I, and I think actually Dennis said that too. I I don't know that Bill Maher kind of goes for all that. He who knows? I mean, he's he's hard he's hard to pin down, but he, he 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 mostly goes for the laugh. But the audience that would have been laughing at Dennis now is on board, of course, with the idea that men can menstruate. Uh, my point in 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 recalling that anecdote is in what I just said. In the previous segment about what Adam Carolla just said, if you want to know what white bigots stood for in the 30s, 40s and early 50s or 20s, 30s, 40s, early 50s, really, you know, much of the first half of the 20th century, look at what elite civil rights organizations and activists and scholars and professors say now. It's the same exact thing. They're saying the same same exact thing. Now, people may laugh at that or, or dismiss That um, I think clever point. I I have no problem saying it because it's not mine. It's Adam's. I think he made a clever, smart point. People would be inclined to dismiss it and laugh at it the way they were inclined to dismiss and laugh at Dennis two years ago. And just as I was doing my article collection, I stumbled upon Brendan O'Neill's piece out just today at Spiked Online. Racial segregation is back in the United States. That old foul practice that most of us thought had been done away with by the 1964 Civil Rights Act has been given politically correct spit and polish. It's a good way to put it. Politically correct spit and polish. Jim Crow's Gone Woke. Consider one of the most left-wing universities, liberal left-wing universities in the country. University of California, Berkeley. A student house there has decreed that white people are forbidden in its common areas. People of color, the house says, must have the right to avoid white violence and presence. How do you like that? White violence and presence. Therefore, no whites allowed. The color line resurrected to protect to protect allegedly fragile blacks from devilish whites. Reverse it, and it's equally noxious. It's also equally toxic. Reverse the rules. Someone's race, by dint of nothing other than their race, is violence. Their presence is offensive. It's happening at the Persons of Color Theme House, one of Berkeley's campus-privately-run student accommodation blocks. The House's rules on guests stipulate that, quote, white guests are not allowed in common places, close quote. Anyone who brings a guest to the House must announce publicly if the guest is white. In case what? In case of what? In case people are blind? In case they're truly colorblind because they're actually blind? You must announce the person is white. Anyone thinking about yellow stars right now? Warning, white person in the building. The Persons of Color theme house has a reputation for this kind of thing. One former resident says its call-out culture is off the scale. Residents are often criticized for being white or get this. You could only get this at a college university. Ready? White passing. White passing. Passing yourself off as white. Aligning themselves with whiteness or allowing white violence in the house. Sounds like a lovely place to live, doesn't it? The Berkeley Student Cooperative that runs the Persons of Color theme house says there is no real official policy on whites, really, really official policy on whites, yet the house is adamant that whites aren't welcome, that people of color need a safe space from white folks' menacing presence. Their very presence is an act of violence. A former alumnus, David Seaborg, he's an environmentalist, this week slammed all this He said there is certainly a pathological disdain for all things white and woke circles, but the Berkeley antics strike me as anti-black too. the notion that black students need to be shielded from the words and ideas and even just the presence of white individuals implies a weakness and a fragility childishly incapable of navigating everyday life in a pluralistic society, it's a fantastically brilliant point that I don't ever want us to lose sight of. When majoritarian parts of this culture buy into or start supporting or defending this nonsense, think about what you're supporting and defending. Christopher Hitchens made this point brilliantly, made this point brilliantly, when people in his writing profession would not, in 1989, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, come to the defense of Salman Rushdie over the Ayatollah's fatwa or death sentence against him. Christopher Hitchens noted that these liberal lefty writers didn't want to offend Iranian culture, didn't want to engage in cultural superiority, to which Christopher Hitchens said, is there a greater offense than to slander the entire Iranian culture as if it actually supports the Ayatollah? Think about what you're doing. Think about what you are saying. Barack Obama got this when he kept saying Osama bin Laden was not a Muslim leader. This is the point Christopher Hitchens was making. You are engaging in group racism, group slander, group libel is the phrase of art, group libel, When you assume the worst about a population, even if you think you're doing it to protect them or for the right reasons, it's a paternalism that is its own arrogance and bigotry. And we're doing it again in America right here. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you want to see something fun, if you're listening on podcast, you won't know what we came in with. We came, um, what what is that? That's John Cougar. I don't know if he was going by John Mellencamp, John Cougar, John Cougar Mellencamp at the time, but uh, ain't even done with the night, right? This is a hilarious video. It's not meant to be. It's It just is. <laughs> it just is worth watching. Uh, anyway, uh, we have fun with our music here. I, I don't want anyone to think, by the way, um that I'm not keeping up and abreast of the Mar-a-Lago shenanigans. I am. Um, I just don't think there's that much to report just yet. We talked about it with Brett Johnson yesterday uh, and the constitutional issues involved and what we can expect. The latest is U.S. Magistrate uh, Judge Bruce Reinhardt. This is the partisan judge that okayed the uh, warrants in the first place. He has now ordered the Justice Department to unseal and make public a redacted version of the affidavit, which is the underlying document used to justify the warrant for the FBI's raid in the first place. Um, So there is this order to unseal and make public this redacted affidavit. The Justice Department turned it over to Reinhardt on Thursday. Um, Now, don't get your hopes up on this. This itself could cause another round or five of legal goings on because this redacted—we don't know how redacted it's going to be, and we don't know how liberal uh, Judge Reinhardt is going to be in allowing a heavy redaction. You know, you could—you've—you've been through this. Did you? The—the report I I have most in my mind on this is the Senate Intelligence Committee report on terrorism, uh, circa. 2004, uh, 2003, 2004, you can have entire pages that are black ink, you know, or at least, you know, almost entire pages that are black ink where one sentence survives, which is actually going in a way, in an odd way to the point Donald Trump's position obtains in the first place. Which is the overclassification and confidentialization of government documents? Anyway, anyway, we wait. We tend to way overclassify. And by the way, as long as we're talking about classified information, we seem to be very arbitrary about when we're going to care about it and when we're not. So the president of the United States, evidently, or the ex-president of the United States, who still has all the security clearances and gets a presidential daily briefing, still can't have access to these things without violating the Espionage Act. But if they're in the middle of a war, like, say, us in Iraq or Afghanistan, in the middle of a war, someone tries to undermine a Republican president by releasing Department of uh, Defense memos, classified Department of Defense wartime intelligence to the Washington Post, and the Washington Post decides to print that, embarrassing the United States, turning over classified information about our allies. Well, that's just all protected by the First Amendment, don't you know? It's this arbitrariness that sticks so much. I'm Seth Leapson. Don't go away. We'll be right back.